Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage Podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast focusing in on teamwork, leadership, and culture where every week on the Teamwork Advantage, we offer you impactful ideas that you can use immediately. And today, wow, we are in for a treat. There's no doubt about that. This is a a woman that I've wanted to talk to and interview ever since we had the podcast launch a year ago. Nicole Malakowski is just, well, let me just read the bio if I can here. A 2019 National Women's Hall of Fame inductee, Colonel Nicole Malakowski, U.S. Air Force, retired, has over 21 years of experience as an officer, leader, and, yes, a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. Upon her commission into the United States military, she was competitively selected to fly combat aircraft and embarked on an adventure among the first group of women to fly modern fighter aircraft. Nicole served as mission-ready fighter pilot for three operational F-15E squadrons. We're going to talk about what it means to be mission-ready today. And she accumulated over 2,300 hours, including 188 hours in combat. She has had the honor of commanding a uh, a fighter squadron, flying as a U.S. Thunderbird pilot, and yes, the first female Thunderbird pilot in history. But also she served as a White House fellow and as an advisor to FLOTUS. For those outside of the D.C. area, that is First Lady of the United States. Nicole has forged a successful path through immense cultural changes in the military as well as in her significant changes and challenges in her personal life. She's happily married to her husband, Paul, also an Air Force veteran of over 19 years, but not hurriedly chasing a 10-year-old twins around the house. She finds immense meaning in practicing Tai Chi and advocating for those people impacted by tick-borne illnesses. Nicole, retired Colonel Malakowski, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Well, it's a joy to be here. I'm happy to be with you, Greg. Oh, this is so exciting. You and I met about five years ago, I guess, six years ago uh, in Washington, D.C., and I've just been enamored with you. I've followed your career and everything in the speaking and training world that you've done since you've left the Air Force. But I want to know a little bit more about the history of Nicole, not the Colonel, I want to know about Nicole Malakowski. Where'd you grow up? How did you get to where you are? Because we were talking a little before and you talked about TLC. Of course, for us, it's teamwork, leadership, culture, but you have a little difference of TLC. So tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people sometimes look at my career, my resume, and I'm grateful for, you know, they, they say, hey, you know, you look pretty successful. You know, what's the secret to success? And, you know, hard work and you know, practice and discipline and all those things are important. But I tell people at the end of the day, I'm honestly a product of TLC and that stands for timing, luck and circumstance. And I don't say that uh, to be like trite or to be overly humble or, you know, because you still have to put in the work. You still have to be able to perform at an elite level to be a fighter pilot or to serve on the Thunderbirds or whatever. But to your point, like I was very lucky to be born, you know, as a woman, in the United States of America in 1974, right? Because of that and the timing, luck and circumstances, I was provided opportunities that a lot of women who came before me didn't have um, and that a lot of other people around the world just aren't afforded. So I was born in Santa Maria, California. 
And my childhood was pretty middle-class American, right? How lucky am I that I never worried for a roof over my head or food on the table, right? Um, I have parents that have been married over 50 years. So as far as like stability, I was given something that not every child you know, has the opportunity for. And that, that provided me with the foundation I needed to dream big. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd say around 1979, give or take a little, cause it's a long time ago. Uh, I was about five, six years old. And we went to an air show, just like the local air show comes to town. Right. It's what middle-class American families like go out to do. Right. It's a fun mm-hmm. thing, a family day, a patriotic day. And I remember watching this jet fly by and it was called the F4 Phantom. And when it came by like low across the runway, it was like a feast for the senses for a five-year-old, right? I had to cover my ears because it was loud. I remember like the, the jet noise, like rumbling my chest, my whole body shaking. And I remember the smell of jet fuel. And as a wow. five-year-old kid, right? I looked at that and I thought, what better thing is there out there? And you combine that with the fact that um, my father had been drafted into the army during Vietnam. Both of my grandfathers had been career military, um, Navy and army. And so I grew up in a family that respected military service, right? I mean, we would go to the Veterans Day parades. I always thought it was cool to watch people in uniform and march in formation. And we were the ones that would stand and put our hands over our hearts. And so I knew from a young age, it was noble and honorable and good to serve. You combine that with the F-4 Phantom I saw that day, <laughs> and I was set. So you left the Army-Navy uh, history behind and went for the Air Force. <laughs> yes, I did. They, look, it was very uh, strategic planning there on my part. There's just simply more pilot slots available in the Air Force than the other services. So I was trying to kind of <laughs> make my odds better, I guess. Yeah. But you know, for a five-year-old kid to say, I want to be a fighter pilot is a big deal what's What's weird is that I stayed maniacally focused on it. Like, Greg, like I didn't have a backup plan at all. So I'm. what did your parents say? You know, um, my parents were, were definitely supportive of, you know, my brother, sister and I and kind of our dreams and what we wanted to do. Um, you know, my dad could have a pretty high standard. So it was usually like, well, what does it take to become a fighter pilot? And so that was good, right? Because I had a target, um, but I was constantly challenged on what's the path to get there. You know, have you done the research? Are you putting in the work to get the good grades, to get the commission into the military? Have you, you know, really, and I guess, committed to doing this? And so that was um, that was a good thing, right? There's no doubt. I mean, when you having the opportunity is critical. Mm-hmm. And that might open a door, but if you haven't done the work, you're not going to get to where you are anyway. Right. And nobody else can do the work for you you after a big personal gnarly goal. I mean, you can draw inspiration from other people. Um, You can obviously ask for advice and take in information, but at the end of the day, it's up to you to process that, Mm -hmm. make it unique to you roll up your sleeves um, and get the work done. I, I know people, like I said, have asked me a lot, you know, what's the secret to success? I mean, if someone can find the secret to success, like, let me know at the end of the Bottle day, it up. It, the answer is do the work, do the work yourself. And when you yeah. do that, right, you can become a master of your craft. Right. Just be open to it. And there was a story that I read years ago that said, if you will spend 30 to 60 minutes a day, every day, focusing in on your specific craft in seven years, you will be the number one or master at that craft in the world. 
Oh, wow. That's a really interesting um, statistic. And I think that that's, that's true, right? Like when you talk mm-hmm. about master of your craft, there's so many people out there that come to mind, you know, for me, different athletes or leaders mm-hmm. that are out there. And it is true. They, they are in competition usually with themselves, right? Right. It's the people who focus inwardly on honing their own skills, as opposed to comparing themselves to other people that become these world leaders in whatever right. the industry is. So leadership I've always talked about has to begin from within. I think you agree with that aspect of it yes. from the, the groundwork and everything you did from a young girl um, through high school, college, and then getting into the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the things that you did to lead yourself, you know, uh, getting into college? And then when you decided to go into the Air Force, tell us about that. Well, I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit, right? Which is just like a fighter pilot would plan a combat mission, right? Is identifying the target first, right? What is the goal that I'm going mm-hmm. after and making sure that you spell that out clearly. And I think very importantly, making sure you speak those kinds of goals out loud. I mean, it's vital that you tell friends and family and colleagues what those goals are. One, so they can cheer you on. Two, so they can hold you accountable. And three, so that there are people out there who know, hey, I've got a resource, you know, that might help you along, you know, the way. So I think speaking the goal out loud is, is vital. And then just like we would plan a target attack in combat, you always work from the target backwards. And so it's about looking uh, at where you are and creating those intermediate steps of where you need to go. So for example, you know, in high school, um, I said, Hey, I want to be a pilot. So I joined organizations like the junior ROTC and civil air patrol to surround myself with people who believed in my dream as much as I did. Um, To learn from those organizations about the culture I thought and was hoping to go into, right? Military service and aviation. And so garnering skills and garnering a network that have indeed lasted me a lifetime, right? right? Here I am at age 46, still leaning on the stuff that happened to me in high school. Um, So garnering those skills uh, along the way and putting myself in team environments um, where, Not only did I have to be a great teammate, not only did I learn to be a leader at times, especially a leader of peers, which can be difficult, but I think one of the things that's vital to being a great leader is knowing how to be a great follower. And I think that that when I look back on high school activities and the Air Force Academy, learning to be a great follower was probably one of the most important foundational aspects of me being able to be a better leader as I went across my career. That's so true. And they teach leadership all over the world. They don't necessarily teach followership. And that's that's a key element because everybody, even a CEO of an organization still has to follow the board of directors in many cases. A hundred percent. You know, so you that, Google, right? Google the word leadership and, you know, millions of hits are coming up. Go ahead and Google the word followership and, and tell me what you see. Um, I, I've got a book up here that devotes one chapter out of an entire book, the graduate level book, and it develops one chapter to followership. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. but it's still just one chapter. And I found that the most, some of the most pivotal moments are big turning points in my professional career were when I was being challenged right? At my followership skills. Right. Now, and, that, that brings me to the question. You know, you, you, you laid out your plan. I'm assuming it was smooth sailing all the way, right? <laughs> Boy, Greg, wouldn't it be great if life was like, <laughs> like linear? You tell know, us I tell, a little about some of the obstacles you had. 
Oh, sure. I, I got to start out by saying, you know, looking back on my career, I can assure uh, your listeners, um, if they don't already know it for themselves, the path to success is always nonlinear, always. Mm-hmm. So there were twists and turns and bumps and bruises uh, all along the way. Um, you know, I had moments when I was at the Air Force Academy. Uh, here I had worked since I was five years old, like maniacally focused on going to the Air Force Academy and becoming a pilot. You know, and I had done well in high school. My grades were good. And all of a sudden you show up at the Air Force Academy and you're not number one anymore, right? You're surrounded by a thousand extremely uh, successful, amazing young Americans. And, you know, all of a sudden you're thrust into this average, right? Like I'm average here. Like this is wild. And, and, and it was good for the ego, right? It was good for me to understand um, I'm in a bigger world now and what I'm my target here, right? To graduate and be commissioned and get a pilot slot isn't about me. Like it was that first realization, like the military service is not about you. This whole service before self thing is very, very real. The whole idea that you're joining a part of an elite team is real. And when I was at the Air Force Academy, let's be honest, I struggled with academics, which I had ne- I had been honor society in high school, straight A's, great SAT scores. And all of a sudden, like I'm getting C's. And that was hard, you know, as an 18 year old kid um, who had this goal, right? Like, how could this be happening? And asking for help, right? I remember going and having to do after school EI. It's called extra instruction. I felt at the time that it was a mark of shame. Um, of course, looking back, what it was, was a resource to help me succeed. Um, exactly. <laughs> but there was immaturity and just a lack of age and wisdom at that time. Um, but I remember that being one of the things, thinking, am I even going to graduate the academy? Am I, am I smart enough? Um, I remember going to pilot training. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Greg. I was going to say, what what was the uh, dropout rate at the Air Force Academy when you were there? The fail rate? Oh, you, you know, I don't remember exactly what those numbers are. I bet we could go online and look it up because it stays pretty, um, pretty amazing. We had over a thousand people when we started, and I think we graduated less than 900. Okay. Um, but please don't hold me to uh, No, no, that's fine. Because it, it just shows that, again, there's a lot of people who get there. Mm-hmm. And then they still don't make it. Now, that may be by their choice or somebody else's choice. doesn't matter. It sure. works that direction. And so that's where I was going was you, you had to persevere through all of that, uh, that turmoil. Yeah. And through all of that, you had self-doubt. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm 46 years old with, you know, a pretty fun career behind me and a few achievements along the way. And I still have moments of self-doubt. I think it's, you know, it's part of part and parcel, I think, of being a human being. Um, because as we go through the different chapters in life, right, the target changes, right? Mm-hmm. The target that we define ourselves, those goals, they can be moving targets and the path to getting there can adjust and you have to be open, right? You have to be yeah, open yeah. to that and open to moving and changing. So that, that brings me to, now. let's, let's get into the air force, your uh, squadron, you're going on a fighter missions or you're in training or whatever. You've got this period of self-doubt. You well, you have to ask for help. How, how did you, how were you able to do it asking your teammates and how did your teammates offer you help? And th- that's so critical, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical. And, you know, I've been on several elite performing teams, whether it's a frontline fighter squadron or, you know, flying on the air force Thunderbirds or anything in between. And, you know, one of the things is the ability for everyone to ask for help. Um, we create a culture and an environment in a fighter squadron where there is a set standard, right? And we 
have that gentleman's handshake and gentlewoman's agreement that says, I will hold you accountable to that standard um, out of caring and compassion and out of our shared commitment to this mission. Because when you think about what we do, the idea that ultimately you're being trained to go to war, that is a high risk situation that can result in life and death situations. It's about looking at each other and going, can I trust you to be my wingman in combat while being shot at? And can you trust me? And in order to get to that level of trust, the training and the practice over decades, right, that goes into honing those skills means we create this environment where we say, you know what, Nicole, you weren't up to standards today. We've communicated the standards, you understood the standards, and now I will hold you accountable, not out of judgment or shame, but out of our shared commitment to excellence in the mission we're trying to do here. Here's the key word, shared commitment to excellence. Now, you've also talked in the past, I've heard you speak about selfless trust. Okay, because we got vulnerability trust that I talk about. Tell us what you mean by selfless trust. And I think I know where you're going with this now after the followership comments earlier, but tell us a little about that. Well, hopefully I hit on what you're thinking. And if not, you take me in that right direction. You know, <laughs> one of the questions people would ask me often on the autograph line after an air show, they'd see the six jets flying, right? 500 feet, 500 miles an hour, upside down, all flying three feet away from each other. And they would look at me kind of wide-eyed and they'd say, what does it take to build that level of trust? And I think oftentimes um, people expect me to say, well, we have a training syllabus and there's minimum altitudes and maximum airspeeds, like all companies have when they onboard people. And that's part of it. That's always going to be important. That's the foundation. Yeah, the foundation. That's not the answer to the question, in my opinion. When people say, Nicole, what does it take to build that level of trust, elite trust? I say, you build trust by being trustworthy. You build trust by being trustworthy. So often as human beings, and I have been guilty of it, and I have to keep myself in check. We look around and we go, you know, that guy needs to prove to me that I can trust him. Or that gal over there, right? I'm not sure I can trust her. I'll just do it myself. And that is the exact wrong way to look at trust. Trust starts with you, your actions, your decisions, modeling the behaviors you want to see in your teammates, whether they're your peers or your supervisor or even the people that are working for you. Mm -hmm. It's about being the subject matter expert in all circumstances that you are so reliable and so dependable that if anybody has a question, right, about what it is you do on a team, they'll instinctually pick up the phone and call you. So you build trust by being trustworthy. That's that's the key point. And that's, you're tying in so much right now because all of this ties into culture, mm-hmm. you know, because it's the culture that's all there. Now, what, was, what did it take? Now, you had a 21-year career in the United States Air Force. What did it take for you to become a fighter pilot we've talked about, but now let's take it to the next level. Two years out of that was a uh, commission time you were a Thunderbird pilot mm-hmm. and you were, let's be clear, the first female Thunderbird pilot in history. Not the first Thunderbird. That's correct. The first Thunderbird pilot. That's so right. What did it take for you to get there? How were you received? All of that. Sure. Yeah. The, you know, the Thunderbird experience is an honor and a privilege for anyone who gets to serve in any function or role on the team. I'm so impressed with the Thunderbirds. It's just incredible to watch. 
Well, it is a, it is a well-oiled elite performing team of extraordinary, great patriotic Americans. And I can tell you, uh, there's no experience really for me that I can compare it to. I still pinch myself. It's funny. Um, I've been to a few Thunderbird air shows since my time on the team and taking my kids to see them. And I'm still like that little kid at five years old. I just think they're amazing. And I have a hard time believing that I did that, (laughs) but, um, you know, let's go back. Okay. Yes. I was the first woman Thunderbird pilot on a team, not because I was like the chosen or anointed one. It is all TLC time, Mm -hmm. luck and circumstance. Remember in 1979, when I went to that air show, That was around the same year that the Air Force first let women go to pilot training. It was against the law. My entire childhood dream was against the law until 1992 when they lifted the ban on women flying fighter aircraft. And that was while I was a sophomore at the Air Force Academy. So when I say timing, luck and circumstance led to my success, I'm serious because there were many women that came before me that would have done that job on the Thunderbirds as well and arguably better than I ever could have. Um, but because I was in this first tranche of women to fly fighter aircraft in the uh, modern fighter aircraft in the air force, um, you had to have a minimum number of hours as a fighter pilot to apply. And so I was just, it took me a few years to garner those hours, this first group of women to garner those hours to apply. And it just so happened, right. That I was the first woman that was chosen. Um, it's a pretty intense application process, as you might imagine, they did your entire career, not just your flying skills, but your skills and character as an officer and how you would represent. I mean, the whole point of this, right, is to represent the amazing airmen and civilians who serve in our Air Force with the honor and the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And that is a huge responsibility. It's almost like the, I'm probably in trouble for saying this by some Thunderbirds, but in my opinion, it's almost like the flying secondary. It's about the connection and the representation, you know, of this greater team. They're going on the assumption that you can do the flying part. Yeah, it, I think that you're absolutely right. When you mm-hmm. get to that minimum number of hours of a fighter pilot, the four-month training program, um, generally speaking, is something that, you know, with repetition, practice, and teamwork, at the end of the four months, you know, you go out on these air shows. But, mm-hmm. you know, you asked about the reception. Um, generally speaking, Greg, uh, I would say that, people were tickled. I mean, just over the moon. That's not the word I was expecting you to use there. they, They were, they were, they would just smile to know that there was a woman out there. And I think it wasn't about me, right? They didn't know Nicole Malachowski. We weren't like friends or anything, but it was what I represented to people, right? This idea to young women that this is in the art of the possible for me, Uh, To see young men look up and go, wow, women can be fighter pilots, right? That wasn't something I could do when I was in in 1979 at an air show. But now we have a whole generation of young men Mm -hmm. who think it's normal, which is fantastic. Um, I would be, let me me back up. You know, when you're a Thunderbird pilot or not, anybody on the Thunderbird team, the the, the public treats you a little bit like rock stars. I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of. I mean, you get put up on a pedestal that, in my opinion, I certainly didn't uh, deserve. But it's a reminder, I think, that, you know, you have a responsibility as an officer to live up to that. You know, like it it was a good way to be held accountable to a certain standard of professional behavior. Um, And generally speaking, it was really amazing. I I got thousands of letters from around the world. It it was wild. Um, 
Well, was everyone thrilled? Of course not, Greg. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes, uh, you know, organizational cultural change is hard. And when you're something different or new, um, it can be a challenge to other people's balance. There were indeed people, both within the Air Force uh, and civilians, who had a visceral reaction uh, to the fact that they let a woman on the team. Um, it was the minority. I'd be lying if I said it didn't hurt. It did. I had to compartmentalize away from that and focus on the good and the supportive. So that and became part of your self-doubt in there too. Of, of course. There was a lot of imposter, you know, imposter syndrome and stuff. You know, people go, oh, how the guys on the team treat you? You know, thinking I'm going to say something bad. Dude, these guys, I could not have picked, and I am not pandering. I could not have picked a better group of men to do that year, right? When I joined the Thunderbird team, because remember they were my peers. They never knew an air force without women fighter pilots in it. It wasn't a big deal to them. Right. Most of the issues were generational. So right. it would be the older generations who struggled. And one of the things I found interesting was some of these uh, maybe retired fighter pilots, let's say, who had a visceral reaction. It was almost as if, my becoming a fighter pilot and a Thunderbird pilot somehow lowered the awesomeness of them having been a fighter pilot. Whereas they wow. should have said, right, look at us. We are in this really elite job. Like to become a fighter pilot is, is very rare and it's hard to do. And look at all of us. We attained this. Isn't that neat? Instead, it was, well, a woman did it. So somehow you know, you're lowering my accomplishment, which was a weird way, I think, of thinking. To be clear, I want to be very clear. They were the minority. I just ignored mm -hmm. them. And at the end of the day, they age out, right? The, mm -hmm. what, what mattered were my teammates and peers that I was flying with. Yeah. And from that perspective, it was a non-issue. Yeah. And so the culture within that, tell us a little bit about the culture that's among the, the Thunderbirds in total. And I know there's Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine how many people there are six pilots, right? And There's, then, well, you got six active pilots that are on a, on an air show at a day. You've got more than that in the, in the program, but how many people are on the Thunderbirds team? Thank you for asking and for bringing that up. So give or take on average, um, there are about 125 people from 25 different career functions who all come together to make that elite mission happens. And all it takes is one person, just one, right? Not performing to a standard of excellence. And that entire complex, gnarly, elite mission, that air show, you know, doesn't happen. And the six pilots that fly in the air show, so to be clear, there's 12 officers, there are eight pilots, one through six fly in the air show. Um, but the other hundred are like the most amazing, talented, skillful, mm -hmm. patriotic, enlisted Americans you will ever meet. I was spoiled rotten on the Thunderbirds to be able to work with the people I, I did. Um, I would tell people in the audience, you know, you just watch that show and we go to the autograph line and, and they want pictures with the pilots or they want to ask the pilot a question. And I guess that's understandable, but I would remind them, you know, the pilots worked really hard, me, right? So six of us, 30 minutes out of a day. And that's true, we did. 
But the other 23 hours and 30 minutes out of a day, there were 125 people from 25 different career fields out there making it happen. You know, we're the visual kind of symbol out there, but I wish more people could understand the gnarly mechanisms and the awesomeness that happens behind the scenes is what makes it is what makes it work. I mean, you go to a rock concert, okay? You got the band on stage, but you've got hundreds of people running everything else behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Right, and they're doing it. powerful and i want to point something out you know the thunderbirds uh at least in the air force are relatively unique as a squadron um, let's go and talk about a regular fighter squadron so the place i spent most of my mm-hmm. career a frontline fighter squadron you know mostly the air crew hang out in their own building on base and i like to think we were mature enough to realize that around base there were aircraft crew chiefs and there were people in logistics and supply and finance and medical and I think generally we had an appreciation for that. And then I joined the Thunderbirds, right? And it's unique because there are very few squadrons in the Air Force where the mission, the air show, the mission of the squadron, means everybody is under the same roof. So when I joined, I showed up and I said, hey, I've arrived. I'm the pilot. Let's go fly. And they were like, yeah, no. No, nah, not so much. That's not about you, you know? Thanks, pilot. But let's ego see. check. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it was valid. I mean, it was a valid ego check. You know, they said, Hey, why don't you get to know all of us first? You know, so you spend those first days and weeks, at least when I got there, I got to know everybody, you know, I had to get to know. I mean, it was required by the culture, spoken and unspoken on the Thunderbirds. Our names, our first names, our spouses' names, our kids' names, our hometowns, our hobbies. And while you're at it, why don't you come do a little day or two internship with all 25 functions so that you, Miss Pilot, can understand, mm-hmm. right, that if I don't do my job right, how it impacts you and vice versa. And I like to remind people, like, the one thing, if I have one takeaway from my time on the Thunderbirds, it's this. Nothing of significance is ever accomplished alone. Nothing of significance is ever accomplished alone. I grew up and matured a lot as a teammate, as a follower, um, as a leader because of the Thunderbirds. And ironically, I thought I had it all in the bag before I got there. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Reality ego checks are amazing. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And that that's, that's the power. That's one of the things that while I have never served in the United States military, I have this unabridged respect for every branch of the service. And I've worked with every branch of the service. Well, I can't quite say that now. Space Force is there. I have not worked with Space Force yet. We need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I've worked with every branch of the military. And I got to tell you, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard, okay, there is that sense of camaraderie. There is that breakdown spirit. There is that break you down, build you up as a team, and that culture that comes with it. And what you just talked about is the quintessential of what we do on the Teamwork Advantage. What I focus my last 20 years on is how do we work together? Right. How do we, John Kennedy had said, great. He says, a rising tide raises all ships. Indeed. And that's so, so powerful. So what I, I kind of want to get into is we're getting tighter on time right now, but I want to talk just a little bit about um, what are some lessons that you've got from your 21 years in the Air Force, Thunderbirds? And we also want you to talk a little bit about uh, serving FLOTUS and yeah. what that was like. But what do that, but also tell us a little bit about 
what can we take in everyday lives for those who are not in the military? And how can we apply it regardless whether we're a janitor or whether it's CEO? You know, Greg, it's interesting because you and I clearly could talk probably for days and I think yeah. I could probably list 10 things. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to focus it like this. I often get asked, Nicole, if you had one piece of advice to give your younger self, right? What would mm-hmm. it be? If you had one piece of advice to give a high school kid or a college kid that's looking, you know, to, to do something gnarly or complex in their life, a big dream, what would you say? And honestly, the number one thing I would tell people, and I wish I could go back and tell myself is only you get to define success for yourself. Don't ever let any organization, person, company define for you what Mm. success looks like. And when you are in military service, because that's pretty much the only experience I have, I can't speak to corporate America you know, there's still kind of a 1950s talent management pipeline that's going on. And it is something I think the military needs to and must do better at. There's this linear path and and squares and boxes you have to fill and you have to be crammed Mm -hmm. into this one mold. And I don't think that that's the right way. And when you start to kind of believe that, it limits you. It limits your skill sets and your contribution and it can limit your happiness. Okay. yeah, that would be my one piece of advice to my old self or as a young person. You define success. Don't ever fall mm-hmm. or anybody else trying to define it for you. That's powerful. And that's, it's simplistic, yet it's profound all at the same time. And that's, that's what's amazing. So you, you also serve as a White House fellow yes. and advisor to uh, First Lady of the United States. Tell us about how that came about and tell us about that little experience. Sure. Well, it's actually, just to be clear, two separate experiences. I was a White House fellow in 2008 and 2009, and then I returned to the White House in 2015 to serve um, then First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. So as a White House fellow, um, I had just finished up on the Thunderbirds, found myself mid-career and was thinking, gosh, you know, how do you top that? right? Like, where do you go from there? In the Air Force, um, at that time, an age in the career wanted you to do something career broadening and expanding kind of outside of the cockpit for leadership development. And I had been in an air show out there uh, in Illinois. And I remember coming in on a Sunday uh, before the air show, because I was the navigation officer. So I had to do all the planning, the mission planning for the formation to fly home. I did all the refueling, scheduling, all of the flight path, all of that. And there was a, an older gentleman who came in and uh, he was the one that was kind of responsible for hosting us. Big, tall guy, loud voice, um, energy that could just like amaze a room, right? Kind of larger than life. His name's John Borling, General John Borling, call sign Viking. He was a retired Air Force general and fighter pilot, but I did not know it at the time. He walked into the room and he said, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, can I help you? you need coffee. Can I get you coffee? I look over, there's this older man, like on his hands and knees, getting through cupboards, trying to make me a cup of coffee. He helps me out. I move on. Come to find out right later that he's a retired fighter pilot general. And not only that, he felt he had spent several years in the Hanoi Hilton. Mm. So here's this man, Mm. an American hero who didn't walk into the room and announce who he was and give me his CV and his resume who was just trying to get me a cup of coffee, right? Mm. Just extraordinary. Well, I get home that Wednesday, my phone rings. 
I said, hello at my house. It's the one day we get off Wednesdays. And he said, Hey, Nicole, John Borling, you remember me? And I'm like, uh, I don't really know. He connected the dots for me. I need you to have that context about him as a person. And, his right. and by the way, let's, I want to clarify something because we got a lot of listeners on here oh, yeah. who are very young, who yes. probably do not know the Hanoi Hilton was a uh, prison camp in Vietnam. Yes. So yes, okay. he had uh, flown as a fighter pilot during Vietnam and unfortunately ended up on the ground and endured several years of yeah. that prisoner of war. Um, I've actually interviewed uh, Captain Charlie Plum, who also spent six years in a in the Hanoi Hilton thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, John Borling's just one of those people who grows your heart the second he walks yeah. into the room. Um, he has seen life in a different way and has transcended to a different level of compassion and humanity, I think, because mm-hmm. of it. But he called me on this phone and I'm like, what? And then I discovered who he was. And he says, hey, have you ever heard about the White House Fellowship? He had been a White House Fellow. And he said, uh, you're going to apply for the White House Fellowship. And I said, okay. He says, I'm going to call you next week, do some research. And he hung up the phone like a fighter pilot would. It was that quick. <laughs> and I looked at the White House Fellowship and I thought, there's no way, one, that the Air Force would let me do it, but more importantly, that I would ever be picked. This is uh, the President's Leadership Program started by Lyndon Johnson. It's usually 12 to 14 Americans from mid, uh, mid-career from across all industries. It's mostly civilian but they do let military apply. I looked at that and I'm like, there's no way I qualify for that or that I would be picked. Next Wednesday, same time, time on target, phone rings. Nicole, John Borling, have you considered the White House Fellowship? I, I demurred, sir, so nice of you. I think it's thoughtful you think, uh, you know, I wanted to be so respectful to this American hero. I said, sir, you know, I'm just not sure it's in the cards for me, but thank you so much. And he's like, yeah, no, I'll call you next Wednesday. You're doing this. <laughs> I hang the phone hoping this, this this guy would forget about me. Nope. Next Wednesday, boom, same time, phone rings, John Borling. And so I thought to myself, he said, what, what does it hurt to apply? I believe in you. What does it hurt to apply? Uh, you'll get a nice CV and resume put together. You'll hone your essay skills. You'll learn from an interview process. There's so much to be gained by just trying. And you just came off of a really big experience as a Thunderbird and you need a new mission and goal and target to be working towards. You're a fighter pilot. I know that. So literally like this was like a three, four month thing where John Borling said, you're going to do this. And the rest of course is history. I became a White House fellow. And I think the point for listeners is you know, believe those who believe in you. Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes other people have better belief in, our, in us than we do ourselves. And I'm still dear friends with him to this day. And if your listeners are out there, um, I'd like to say he has an, he's a, he's a Renaissance man. He's a poet. He wrote a book called Taps on the Wall, um, poems that kind of harken back to his experience uh, in Vietnam, et cetera. And as a husband and and father and grandfather, um, I really recommend reading it. It's very moving. Um, And he also is very dedicated. uh, He runs something called SOS America, uh, dedicated to seeing all young Americans do some form of service, not just military, but mm-hmm. community service, et cetera, um, in their in their youth. So he's a, he's an amazing person. Look him up. I will. Def- I just wrote his name down. Definitely. Well, so 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 anyway, I got picked for the fellowship. Sorry, like your main question. <laughs> I, got, I, I love John Borling so much and look up to him so much. I got distracted. Um, 
Well, so yeah, so what, what was cool was I was hired under uh, then President George Bush. Um, it was an election year. So I did six months under Bush and six months under President Obama. And what's even cooler is I actually was assigned to the General Services Administration, which nobody really talks about or thinks about until a transition year. And I'm sure you all saw it in the news this year, but they run the office of the president elect and are responsible for the transition. Why that's important is I got- Living in DC, I know all about GSA. (laughs) I got assigned to the office of the president elect. So here's this totally random Air Force major who had no business to have a front row seat to the transition between presidents, the most powerful office in the world, in something that was a historic moment towards our first African-American president. Yeah. I was there. I talked with these guys. I saw the transition. Look, I had I feel like Forrest Gump, right? Like I had no <laughs> idea how I ended up there. But what a brilliant opportunity um, to learn about the federal government. Uh, not just the challenges of policymaking at the federal government, but the opportunities mm-hmm. that government can can seize on behalf of the American people. It was such an amazing perspective. And the most important thing wasn't the fellowship. It was the other fellows. I was with doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, bankers, philanthropists, scientists who were out there performing at the elite level in other industries. And I had been so in this military world, right? And all of a sudden I see that America is full of just extraordinarily talented human beings. And these are all people that I look up to and admire to this very day. Sweet. That is just, that's amazing. I love that. Well, so, so How did that get you to Flotus? Yeah, how did that happen, right? So I left the White House fellowship. I was able to go back, uh, fly the F-15E. I commanded a fighter squadron. Um, I went to the U.S. Naval War College and all of that. I came back to the Pentagon like most Colonel Selects do, you know, working in the basement, in the dungeon, long hours, (laughs) fixing my PowerPoint slides and creating executive summaries for generals. Um, You know, being a colonel uh, in the Pentagon is a pretty uh, (laughs) interesting experience. (laughs) Pretty rough experience, I won't lie. Um, Not the most enjoyable, but one day, while I was there in 2015, the phone rang at my desk and uh, I, you know, I answered it and they're like, Hey, uh, the first lady of the United States and Dr. Jill Biden um, are going on their fifth year of this white house initiative called joining forces. Have you heard of it? Nope. Haven't heard of it. So I looked it up and I realized it's a white house national level initiative Um, to shine a light right on all the issues related to service members, veterans, and military families across employment, education, wellness, you name it. And I was like, this is actually amazing. I mean, in a a lot of ways, they were coordinating and and hurting 40,000 at that time, different veteran service organizations and military service organizations. And using the pulpit of the first lady and second lady of the United States to shine a light, not just on the awesomeness, right, of service members, veterans, and military families. They were very brave to shine a light on the hard stuff, the hard stuff, right? Let's talk about veterans homelessness. Let's talk about veterans suicide. Very courageous women. Mm -hmm. Veterans hospitals and too, all all of it. And I thought, this is great. Why are you calling me? They said, well, we know you were a White House fellow. We had experience with you, you know, at the beginning of the administration. They're looking for a new executive director. How about you send over your resume? I mean, this is my life, right? Forrest Gump. I'm not kidding. Like I run TLC, TLC, hundred percent. 
And so um, sent over my resume and literally within two weeks, I was over there. I had an office in the East Wing, parking spot over there behind the, behind the gates. Uh, Sonny and Bo, the dogs would come walking through the office. And I worked directly for the chief of staff for the first lady. Um, and I worked for the first lady. I, she would just walk down the hallway, you know, and you're like, my gosh, how did I, a colonel in the Air Force, end up working for not just, you know, Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden, two truly extraordinary women, but like this amazing team that they've surrounded themselves with. I, I still yeah. just, just like we watch yourself. Yeah, I, I don't. And so, but I got to tell you, you know, to be able to do work um, and affect national level policy that had an immediate impact on my tribe, right? Um, you know, as a full bird colonel was wild and meaningful and mm -hmm. awesome. Because if I had stayed at the Pentagon, right, like you have to brief someone to brief someone to brief someone so a general can take credit for your idea, right? I mean, here it was me and the first lady and her chief of staff. There was no in-between. They would come to me and ask me a question. And it was intense though too, right? Because if the first lady would come to me with a question related to the military, you only get one chance to get that right. Because if you're giving her information and it's now going to come out of her mouth in a public setting or whatever, right? Your job is to educate with 100% you know, factual yep. guidance. Yep. So it was an intense year, but a meaningful year. That's so powerful. That's so <laughs> powerful. I know you've got a passion. I want to make sure we touch on this um, in helping veterans projects, but you've also got a passion working with people with tick-borne illnesses. Yes. So tell us just a little bit about your passion there. Sure. Well, you know, we've, we've gone through a pretty fun and exciting career of TLC and awesome achievements. And right there at the end, uh, at the end of my year working with the first lady, I, I like to call it plot twist, you know, <laughs> life was going good. Um, and then I fell severely ill. Um, I had been sick for about four years. I'd been a bit of a medical mystery for a while. In fact, they asked me to stay on at joining forces until the election, but I actually had to say no. And let me tell you, Try, telling the first lady and second lady of the United States, thank you, but no thank you, is a very, very difficult thing. That's a daunting do. task. Especially because I enjoyed the heck out of working um, for them. But uh, I was too sick to do it, and I had to put my health first. But um, I ended up in 2016, uh, just after I finished working at Joining Forces, I had become bedridden uh, 22 plus hours a day. I was struggling to walk, talk, read, and write. Um, I was having all sorts of just bizarre symptoms across all systems in my body, uh, military and civilian medicine alike were really, really struggling. And then in August of 2016, I woke up and uh, I was like temporarily paralyzed or locked in, um, couldn't move, couldn't speak, extraordinarily frightening because you take this very high performing independent type A person and I was completely broken, completely dependent on other people. My husband became my caregiver overnight. I couldn't interact with my kids. It was scary because the doctors didn't know what to do. Uh, long story short, they did cut bait and send me to Boston, which has amazing uh, medical facilities. They cast the net wide and um, gave me my accurate diagnosis and started me on my recovery. Uh, I tell people my career was gone in the blink of a bite, which is true. I, I am actually a survivor of late stage neurological tick-borne illness. I'm sitting here, I, I sometimes have it down here. Oh, I keep it with me, I don't know why. This is my discharge paperwork. Uh, <laughs> I was medically retired 
um, against my will. I went out kicking and screaming. It was horrible, but dated 21 July, 2017, unfitting conditions, quote, 100% unfit for duty due to chronic tick-borne systemic illness, permanent retirement, end quote. That's how my career came to an end. And it was a very difficult time because I thought to myself, who am I if I'm not wearing my nation's uniform? What is my contribution to society if I'm not a pilot? Um, how do I provide for my family with this new kind of chronic, complex, invisible illness that I live with? And I had a bit of a pity party. And in the moment uh, that my retirement date came, there was no ceremony. I was laying on the couch. Some of my retirement paperwork was mailed to me in a folder. Yeah. Thanks for your service, right? Wow. And, uh, yeah. And these words came to my head, Greg, yield to overcome, yield say to that overcome. A, say that again, yield to overcome. And I pondered those words. And to me, it didn't mean giving up, surrendering or quitting. What it meant was stop asking yourself the wrong questions. Ask yourself the right questions. What is it that you can do right now? What resources do you have at your ability? Where can you move forward and still be, you know, someone who contributes. And I, I tell people a lot now when I share this story, right, of just having a complete plot twist thrown in my life that, you know, what gives your life meaning? And I had been on this train, this path of letting the Air Force define what success should look like, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of blindly. And you don't want to wait for chaos or crisis to happen to you in your life to be able to answer that question. Answer it now. What gives your life meaning? Who are you? What is it that you value and why? So that when crisis and chaos happen, because they will, and the unexpected comes along because it will, it will make it easier, smoother, more efficient, you know, to endure that disruption. Um, but yield to overcome helped me be forward looking I didn't ask to be sick. I didn't ask to get bit by a tick. I didn't ask to be medically retired, but what are you going to do now? Uh, and I reminded myself, you know, Nicole, the runway behind you is always unusable. All you have is the runway that's in front of you. And it was that kind of aviation metaphor and mindset um, that helped me through and helped me reinvent myself to what I do today. That's so powerful. And that, there's a lot in me right now that's coming out because of what you just said. And uh, I love the yield to overcome. I love the runway metaphor. It's, it's, it's touching. Well, I'm, it's really glad, I'm glad it connected with you. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Everybody in the Air Force, Navy, Marine pilots have call signs. Yes. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I can never get off of an interview without someone asking this, man, but it's a good and valid question. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. You, you have a very uh, unique call sign uh, at, at first. Am I right? Because it did change. Am I right? No, I've been, I've had the same call sign ever since I was a lieutenant in the 90s. Okay. And who gives you your call sign? Sure. Yeah. Call signs are always a, a, a fun thing for people to ask about, you know, because it is part of fighter pilot and fighter aircrew um, tradition and culture, um, your call sign is given to you by your squadron mates. You don't have, trust me, you'd have no say <laughs> in it. And the more you fight it, 
the worse those call sign options get. So it behooves you <laughs> to let yourself be named. But th there's two things I, I want, uh, you know, Greg, for you to know, and I think the public who's listening, if they're curious about call signs, there's two things that are important. One is that you do not get a call sign until you're fully combat mission ready or what we call CMR, which means you're fully qualified to, to fly in combat. It's a very symbolic event, a huge tradition that says, we are willing to take you into combat with us. I'm willing to have you as my, I trust you as mm -hmm. my wingman, right? Yep. It's a big moment to get a call sign. The second thing is the call sign is always, always making fun of that person. Either a character trait, mistake, failure, something quirky. Do not let any fighter pilot, I don't care who they are. So no goose and maverick here, huh? Cool. Yeah, I don't care if there's a guy whose name is killer or maverick. I guarantee you that that call sign is somehow making fun of something he or she did. Um, so uh, my call sign is Fifi, big F, little I, big F, little I. The full story, Greg, is not safe for work, but anybody who meets me uh, is welcome to buy me a beer. And I promise in person, I will tell that story. <laughs> But let me, let me give you a general feel. Um, imagine being a woman in a fighter squadron in the late 90s, right? I'm, uh, what, 25 years younger than I am now and 25 pounds lighter. And, you know, I walk in as this little thing during a time of great cultural change as women came into this combat specialty. And there was apprehension, right? Who is this little young 20-something, you know, 120 pounds soaking wet, you got to be kidding me. And then as I went through training and they got to know my personality um, and my, my growing skills as a young fighter pilot, it became one of these like little things. Like she looks like a little Fifi, like a cute little poodle. You want to bend down to pet, but if you do be careful, she might bite. So it kind of is along that kind of attitude. Um, there is a more in-depth, not safe for work story, but I, I am always it. happy share that um, with people in person. Mm -hmm. I will say that the Air Force has um, rightfully come a long way with call signs. Um, there were some that, you know, the, the stories that aren't safe for work or maybe with some type of things that, you know, weren't. Yeah. yeah. They were very 90s. I'm glad to say that we've come a long way and call signs these days still make fun of people, but they're a lot more um, professional. PG, PG rated. And I, and I honestly, I think rightfully so. So yeah. 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 I got to tell you, I am fascinated. We have been on here for over 50 minutes. Oh, really? <laughs> and it's like, I try to keep talking. That, that I'm telling you, Nicole and I could talk for hours without question about this. Um, and it happened from the very first time we met. Uh, five. It was right after you were discharged, I believe. You're right. Um, I, I, Yeah, it really was because I was in therapy for about a year and a half. So I suspect I met you in 2000. Let me think about the 17. 17. Yeah. yeah. It's just fascinating. So um, you want to know more about Nicole, just be sure to follow her on the social media of Instagram, uh, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, you can get all that information out there. It's just, she's one of the most powerful people I've had the privilege to know, most generous and giving person that I've had the privilege to get to know over the years. And uh, it's, I've wanted to interview you literally, I think, since the day we met. And wow. so we're finally getting that opportunity to sit down and talk. Your schedule's hectic, mine's hectic. And Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it's a privilege to know you. 
share things with you. And uh, it's just all in all, thank you for being a friend. Well, yeah. thank you very much, Greg, for having me. I obviously admire the work that you do with teams and organizations on just teamwork, leadership, and even the followership that uh, we talked about today. Mm-hmm. I too am honored to uh, have you as my friend. Thank you. It's a privilege. Every week on the Teamwork Advantage right here, we offer you impactful ideas that you can use immediately. And I think you've definitely got some here today. Until next week, remember that having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, you are not average. So make today an excellent and exceptional day. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.